sorry that right view is not nearly as exciting as wrong view. It's uh, <laughs> just the way it goes. Question? Pass the mic around so we can get it on the DVD. So it seems like within this is, you know, if you kind of, if you have right view, you have the whole path in some sense. Right. If indeed your right view is complete right view, you've got the whole thing down. Right. But you've only got the description of the mango. You still have to bite into it. All right. So having the right view, really understanding all of this stuff intellectually is only part of the path. You still got to do the practice. So right view is just speaking to intellectual understanding. It's it's more like a compass. It's orienting you. It's setting you in the right direction so that when you do the practice, you can do it effectively. So that when you do the practice and you have these experiences, they can be understood experiences. Okay? If you have an experience but have no context for what happened, don't know what's going on, what was that? It may not be the least bit useful. Um, some of you may know that I teach retreats where I teach the jhanas. And frequently on retreats, people come to me and they describe having fallen into a jhana on some other retreat. But they didn't know what it was. Okay, So they had this quite amazing experience, but without the right view, without the understanding, wasn't useful. They didn't know how to repeat it. They didn't know it was useful to repeat it or anything else. They had the experience but no understanding. Or you have the understanding and you don't have the experience to go with it. Either way, you're thinking a peach and a mango are the same. So it's sort of the knowing skillful means. I like having, not necessarily having walked the path, but having the map. Right. A good map. And a a good map. Maybe even a GPS. And a compass. Yeah, it's a good map and a compass. But you still got to walk the path. Right. Anything else on? All right. We have one more sutta on right view that I think I want to share with you. There's lots more. Um, Majjhima Nikaya 117. If for those of you who are taking notes, has some information on right view. But the one I want to share with you comes from the Samyutta Nikaya. On one of the retreats I taught this summer, somebody insisted I give my top six suttas. It's like, six suttas? All right. I came up with seven. I couldn't do it in less than seven. And this is one of the ones I picked. Uh, Samyutta Nikaya 12.15, the Katyana Gota Sutta. Buddha was living at Savati, and the venerable Katyana Gota approached the Blessed One, and on arrival, having bowed down, sat to one side. And as he was sitting there, he said to the Blessed One, Lord, right view, right view, it is said. To what extent is there right view? <clears throat> And this is the venerable Katyana Gota. This means he was already a monk. This wasn't somebody like Bhachagota who's wandered in off the street, you know, wants to know what's going on or long fingernails. Right? This is somebody who was already a monk. Had obviously been studying with the Buddha, knew about right view, and so he 
comes to the Buddha and he wants a deeper explanation of right view. So the Buddha's not going to give him the, you know, basics. He's going to give him something actually quite profound. By and large, Katyana, this world is supported, takes as its object, a polarity, that of existence and non-existence. But when one sees the origination of the world as it actually is with right discernment, non-existence with reference to the world does not occur to one. When one sees the cessation of the world as it actually is with right discernment, existence with reference to the world does not occur to one. The polarities of existence and non-existence. We don't usually think of this as some sort of spectrum. You know, doesn't exist, sort of almost exists, beginning to exist, kind of there, you know, really getting there now, it's solidly there, it's really there, oh, it's incredibly there. We don't think of it as like that. It's like binary. Doesn't exist, does exist, you know. A little bit pregnant, no, it doesn't come. Not pregnant, totally pregnant, right? On or off. But the Buddha is saying... Not that there's a spectrum, but that the whole concept of existence and non-existence is fixating on extremes that aren't really there. If one understands the arising of things, then one doesn't fixate on existence. And if one understands the cessation of things, one one doesn't fixate on non-existence. Oh, pardon me, I got it wrong. If one understands the arising of things, one doesn't fixate on non-existence. If one understands the ceasing of things, one doesn't fixate on existence. Now, that may seem a little strange, but he keeps going. By and large, Katyana, this world is in bondage to attachments, clings, and biases. But one such as this does not get involved with or cling to these attachments, clinging fixations of awareness, biases, or latent tendencies. He is not resolved on myself. So, but one such as this, but one such as those of us on the path, do not get involved with or cling to these attachments, clinging fixations of awareness, biases, or latent tendencies nor is one resolved on myself. One has no uncertainty or doubt that when there is arising, only dukkha is arising. And when there is passing away, only dukkha is passing away. In this, one's knowledge is independent of others. It is to this extent, Katyana, that there is right view. Okay. One does not get involved with or cling to these attachments, clingings, fixations of awareness, biases, or latent tendencies. One is not resolved on myself. When we experience the world, we chop it up into bits and pieces. When I look around the room, I see individual people, I see chairs. I see a clock in the back. I see some cushions over here. I see this bell. I cut it up into pieces. And I make things out of the pieces. What the Buddha is saying is 
this is not correct. Don't go fixating on things. Don't chop the world up into pieces and think there are existent bells and cups and cushions and chairs and people. Everything exists. This is one extreme. Everything doesn't exist. That is the second extreme. Avoiding these two extremes, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma via the middle. And what is the middle? From ignorance as a requisite condition come concoctions. From concoctions, consciousness. From consciousness, name and form. Name and form, six senses. Six senses, contact. Contact, Vedana. Vedana, craving, craving, clinging, clinging, becoming, becoming birth, birth as requisite condition, then aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress and despair come into play. Such is the origin of this entire mass of dukkha. Now, from the remainderless fading away of that very ignorance comes the cessation of concoctions. From the cessation of concoctions comes the cessation of consciousness, from the cessation of consciousness, the cessation of name and form, the cessation of name and form, the cessation of the sense six media, from the cessation of the sense six media, the cessation of contact, from the cessation of contact, the cessation of feeling, from the cessation of feeling comes the cessation of craving, from the cessation of craving comes the cessation of clinging, from the cessation of clinging comes the cessation of becoming, from the cessation of becoming comes the cessation of birth, from cessation of birth, then aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain and distress, despair, all cease. Such is the cessation of this entire mass of dukkha. This is an enormously important sutta. In fact, this sutta appears to be the canonical basis for the Mahayana teaching on emptiness via Nagarjuna's Mulamanyamaka Karika which is made reference to, which makes reference to this, this sutta. All right, so let's look again at what's going on. The Buddha has an advanced student coming to him, wants to know about right view. The Buddha says that there are two extremes, existence, non-existence. Things really exist, or things don't really exist. It's all a dream. If you understand the origin of things, you don't get confused about non-existence. If you understand the cessation of things, you don't get confused about existence. So now you need to look at arisings and ceasings. Buddha mentioned this before today, I believe, right? In terms of the five aggregates. Okay. In general, people are in bondage to the things they think exist. They resolve on the inherent existence of things and in particular the inherent existence of me, the most important person in the universe. Right? But by following the middle way, no uncertain, one has no uncertainty or doubt that what's arising is dukkha and what's ceasing is dukkha. Now, that's kind of interesting. Just dukkha arising and passing away. That's all that's going on. Remember the five aggregates are said to, in short, be dukkha? What's rising and passing are the five aggregates. 
How are we to see this? We're to see this in terms of dependent origination. We are to look and see that this actually is temporarily a bell, that it used to be, well, what, copper and bronze, no, brass, bronze, now it's brass. Those were melted together and somebody hammered it into this shape. Probably somebody sitting cross-legged in a third world country, you know, in the street with a hammer just banging away. Right, and now it's a bowl. And at some point it'll become something else. This is a dependently arisen phenomenon. It changes very slowly. We miss the fact that it's continually changing and eventually will disappear. We make that same mistake with ourselves. We are dependently arisen phenomena. We are changing, well, a bit faster than the bowl perhaps. And we too will eventually change until we change out of existence. The entire universe is nothing but dependently arisen phenomena. This is what we need to see. We need to see the empty nature of things. That there are not, in an absolute sense, individual things. When we reify anything, when we make a solid object out of something, we have not correctly understood the, de the dependently aris arisen nature of something and we have also missed the interdependent nature. I mean, if things are dependently arising and then causing other things to a dependently arise, which are causing other things to a dependently arise, all this stuff is interconnected. So we need to view the world as an interdependent dependently arisen phenomena. Joseph Goldstein gave a talk one time and he suggested that it would be very useful if you stopped thinking of yourself as a noun and thought of yourself as a verb. That you're a process. In fact, right now, you're listening. Right? You could say, I'm a listener, but actually you're listening. And you're sitting in a chair on the floor you're breathing, okay? Your digestive process is doing its thing. So it's much more accurate to think of ourselves as a collection of processes in action. Much more accurate to think of ourselves as a verb. I thought that was pretty good, you know? I used that as a basis for a lot of contemplation and eventually realized there are no such things as nouns. There's just some verbs that move kind of slow. Right? It's all in flux. It's all moving. And in fact, none of it is separate. There is just this big unfolding that is, well, unfolding. That's it. There is unfolding happening. Any view that doesn't encompass this holistic unfolding is missing part of the picture, right? So when you grab a thing, you've missed its changing nature and you've missed its connection to everything else in the universe. 
So as I say, this Katayana Gota Sutta, number 1215 in the Samyutta Nikaya, I think is extremely important. And uh, Nagarjuna quotes it or mentions it in his Fundamental Wisdom of the Middle Way. And that particular work seems to be the basis of the whole Mahayana teaching on emptiness. So if you're looking for the Buddha's teaching, great teaching on emptiness, it's the Katayana Gota Sutta. And what it's pointing out is don't fall into the extremes of existence or non-existence, of eternalism or nihilism. Look at everything as dependently arisen phenomena. So, questions on this one? How much of this illusion that we fall into is due to the relative differences in the way that we perceive time? I would say quite a lot. That is, we. one of the examples in uh, the book Buddha Essence is that if you see smoke coming off of a cigarette and the smoke makes a form, let's say Abraham Lincoln's face, you don't go, oh, it's Abraham Lincoln. Oh, I want to take it home and mount it on my wall. Right? You know, it's changing rapidly enough. You might go, oh, look, it looks like Abraham. Oh, never mind. Right? So you don't conceive of it as a thing. You see its changing nature. Everything is changing in the same way, but on vastly different time scales. Some things are changing enormously fast, and some things are changing quite slowly. I mean, we don't see the hills around here getting pushed up. Occasionally we get reminded they're getting pushed up when there's an earthquake. But we're looking at it this particular time scale. And our lifespan compared to the lifespan of the planet is <laughs> so infinitesimal as to be practically missed. I mean, it's we're here for the blink of an eye. So our time scale is missing a lot of things. And so we take them as permanent. I mean, the hills have been here whole time I've been in the Bay Area, they don't look any different. That's going to be here forever. Well, we know that's not the case. I mean, if we have a deep enough you know, astro astronomical understanding, we know that the sun will eventually grow large enough that it you know, completely absorbs the Earth and there won't be any more hills around here. So, yeah, a lot of it is due to time scale. We miss the changing nature, and so we make nouns out of these slow-moving verbs. It's also, there's the um, natural, uh, you might say, concept of time, and then there's, uh, you might say, man-made concepts of time. Oh, like yeah. New Year's Eve is coming up, but there is no New Year's Eve. <laughs> right, there's no signpost in, in the orbit of the Earth saying, back to the beginning again. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's also, there was a thing they once had on the news about... Um, hundred years ago and very few people wore watches they had a lot different conception of time than they have today but it really fixed it as we know um, you know certain times we got to do stuff or there's even Pavlonia you know, response if you had dinner every day at five o'clock around five o'clock you're gonna get hungry right 
Yeah. And that conditions our whole life. Right. We definitely are much more aware of time than in previous times. And it definitely has a much more, a much bigger influence on us. And it also seems to be going a lot faster. The clocks are running fast. It also really isn't even time. I mean, even, right. even physics is just a convenience. Right. Yeah. If you start really examining time, you know, it's like, uh, uh, where is it? And you, you, you start getting a, a really deep look at it and you come up with some idea like the eternal present. But that's not even really accurate. Much more accurate is the ever-changing now. I mean, if you had a watch that said now, it would always be accurate, right? You know, what time is it? Oh, it's now, right? And uh, it's just now keeps changing, right? So time is this thing that we made up that enables us to measure the rate of change of now. But try looking at time from a perspective of it's always now, but it just keeps changing. You could also do place. It's always here, but here just keeps changing. You know, I took a trip around the world. They had these signs, you are here. Everywhere I went, they were all correct. I just wondered if in this kind of thinking there was place for creativity, even if I considered myself as an iVob and considered making something that I knew was temporary. Definitely. There, you don't ever want to make the mistake of when you get an understanding of the absolute viewpoint, dismissing the relative viewpoint. There are two truths. And it's not that the absolute invalidates the relative. In fact, the words in rel- relative and absolute are tr- translations of what Nagarjuna was talking about. What he said, there are truths that leave something hidden or truths that do not fully reveal. And we translate that as relative truths. And then there are truths which are sublime. Okay? A little bit harder to get at. We need to intuit those, he says. Because we live in both worlds, the relative and the absolute, we actually need to understand both truths. One of the relative truths is if you don't look both ways before crossing the street, you'll get run down by a bus, right? And so if you get a deep understanding of the absolute and step into the street without looking both ways, you get run down by a bus or a Porsche or something, okay? So the relative truth continues to exist. What changes is the understanding that this is not the complete explanation, okay? So the things of the relative world, the creativity of the relative world, the alleviating compassion, I mean, alleviating suffering via compassion in the relative world, all goes on, but actually with a deeper understanding of, of the bigger picture. It seems like there's some stories also in which um, Buddha gives some practices to people that aren't dependent on their understanding of right view. Like um, there's a story of a very simple monk who wasn't able to remember anything, and so he gave him a cloth to rub. Right. 
right? Cloth. And then it became dirty, and then he saw the um, changing nature and so on. Right. It's more about not holding to fixed views. Okay, get the stuff that's holding you where you're at out of the way. That's the key thing. And then here are some skillful means that might be useful. For some people, the skillful means around view are going to be very helpful. For the very simple monk just working the cloth, he didn't need that. He needed something else. There was another monk who couldn't remember the precepts and kept breaking them and was going to disrobe. And the Buddha just simply gave him the one precept, be mindful. But if you're mindful, you start seeing what's really going on. The, the, the views, I, I guess you would say, are the crutches for us who are view addicted. right? So rather than being addicted to explanations of what's going on, be addicted to an orientation. You know, Carry your compass and map. Don't make, mistake the map for the territory. Okay, and use it to guide your practice to see what's going on. Uh, I don't want to say that right view is optional, but I, what I want to say is that what's necessary is seeing things as they really are, and right view is certainly very helpful for that.